please take your Bibles this morning. Let's go over to Acts chapter 6, the book of Acts and chapter 6. Challenge this morning is exactly what Pastor Rod talked about this last Sunday morning. Anytime you're preaching a topical message, then part of the question is, how do you help everybody see that you're actually getting what you're saying directly out of the Bible? And one of the things we try to do whenever it's a topical message, as this one largely is, is we try to go to specific scriptures. And in looking at specific scriptures, I mean the verses that are sitting right in front of you to see if we can draw out those principles. And that's exactly what the challenge will be this morning. There is a manuscript for those of you watching online. The manuscript is online as well so that you can go back and study this. And I'm appealing to you, don't take my word for this. Go back and carefully read the scriptures and study the manuscript and say, is that what the Bible actually teaches? As you're turning over to Acts chapter 6, consider some questions this morning that may show up in the discussion questions in the groups that are meeting this afternoon. Here's the first question. How do people view Christianity differently than the way the scriptures portray it? Interesting question. How do people view Christianity in a way that is different from what's actually in the Bible? Secondly, How should our church function to meet the needs of those who cannot help themselves? And uh, more and more, it certainly looks like in our economy, that may be the uh, more pressing need coming up. How does our church function to meet the needs of those who cannot help themselves? Thirdly, what are some of the ways that congregational authority can be seen in the scriptures? Last week, Pastor Rod talked about pastoral authority. Today, congregational authority. How do you see that? And how do you see that balance that is there in Scripture? And then finally, how can each disciple take advantage of God's blessings in order to function inside a local church? What is this really all about? And how is this actually supposed to work? So with that in mind, let's pray together and then go into Acts chapter 6, shall we? Lord, we believe that by your Holy Spirit, you can do a mighty work in us today. We're crying out to you, Lord, that you would convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, that you would help us to see the reality of what is before us today in a way that would grip our souls with the realities of eternity. Lord, there are people around us who are going into eternity without Jesus Christ, into hell, into the lake of fire. And Lord, it is overwhelming to think of what it would be to be someone who forever and ever is in that awful place. We know to the glory of God the Father how we as a church are supposed to function And we're asking your Heavenly Father today that you would grip our souls with reality of what needs to happen in us so that we might be a wonderful people of God sharing the salt of the earth and light of the world principles that you show us in the Word of God. Lord, we're very mindful of this this morning. That when we read in the book of Jonah and we saw the storms that were pounding that ship in the Mediterranean, that those storms were not there because of the paganism of those sailors. They were there because of the disobedience of that prophet. And Lord, we're coming before you today as a people of God, as believers, as Christians. And we're asking that very same question. 
Are the storms in our society a result of our disobedience? Lord, if that is the case, then we know exactly how to address this matter. We know how to draw near to God and know that he will draw near to us. And so, Lord, in our pain and in our trials, we are crying out to you today, asking that you would be pleased and honored by the preaching of your word. Move your people to pray, even as this preacher preaches today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This church, the early church in Jerusalem, had a very serious problem. And we're going to read about that serious problem here in the book of Acts, beginning with Acts chapter 6, verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 7. And in those days, when the number of the disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration or the serving of food. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And don't, don't miss this last little phrase. And a great number of the priests, those would be the Old Testament Levite priests, a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. When you stop to consider the way that a church is supposed to function, how did it work? Well, Note it from the standpoint of here's a problem. The problem was that the number of the disciples were growing. They had a number of widows to care for. And a little problem broke out because you see a lot of those widows spoke Aramaic. This came down by tradition. They had been taken captive up into Babylon on the the Fertile Crescent, that area. There they had learned Aramaic. They had come back speaking that international language. And yet there were a number of people who spoke Greek. That was the other international language. Because of Alexander the Great, that was the other language that was being spoken. So here you had people. Some were speaking Aramaic. Some were primarily Greek. And a little controversy broke out because some said, hey, 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 I don't think our widows are being treated in the very same way as their widows. And that began to cause a problem. The apostles here acting as pastors and elders inside this church at Jerusalem, they began to try to say, all right, we, you know, we, need, to, we need to do something about this. We've got to, how, how do we overcome this problem? How can we be sure that we are serving these widows' needs and how can we take care of them and how can we do so in a way that, that looks fair and, and even-handed to everybody? How do we, how do we actually go about that? Now, that may seem to you today to be uh, really almost an archaic and irrelevant application. Why would that be? Well, here in the United States of America, how do we see this? You say, well, yeah, we don't have to do that because, hey, the government takes care of that. 
But I'd like to raise the question with you, will there come a day in the future when, as Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, his model prayer, give us this day our daily bread, that we might actually have to pray, give us this day our daily bread in order to subsist. And especially for those who would be helpless, essentially helpless, like widows, how would we take care of them? You say, well, pastor, you really think that thing's going to happen? Well, Let me just point out a few things to you. The wise people in our nation are looking at the facts and they are wondering about the following. Here's the facts. The facts, consumer debt, this is debt just by consumers. Consumer debt is at an all-time high $17 trillion. Pull up the internet, pull up your newspaper, read about consumer credit card debt, and you realize, whoa, look at what is happening here. Just make this comment in passing. One of the biggest indictments against the materialism of our age here in the United States is the abundance of self-storage facilities. Think about what that implies. People are taking so much stuff. They're getting so much stuff. They don't even have room for it in their closets and their houses. And what do they have to do? They have to go rent a place. Now, by the way, I'm not condemning anybody here who has a self-storage facility. There's very good reasons to have that. And certain businesses do the same thing. But here's what I found out recently. That if you took all of the self-storage facilities and just sort of added them all together... It would fill up Hoover Dam 27 times. Now think about what that means. 27 times Hoover Dam filled up with old shoes and old Christmas ornaments and all kinds of things that probably should have been thrown away a long time ago. I mean, what, what are we thinking? Have we gone mad in our materialism? And here's consumer debt, and it's at $17 trillion dollars. The national government debt, as stated, and I would emphasize as stated, is $31 trillion. If that were the case, that means every man, woman, and child owes $97,000 as part of his part of the national debt. But, as I say, that's the way it's, it's stated. There are good indications the national debt is much higher. That national debt does not include all the liabilities on the, the unfunded or more and more unfunded liabilities, such as Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare. And by the way, it doesn't even factor in all the indebtedness on the state and local level where you have all sorts of unfunded pensions. And so I would just like to point out to you that we are looking at an avalanche of debt in this country. So now does that illustration make more sense? Now is it more relevant that there may come a day when you and I really have to pray every day, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And the question I'm raising is, if you say, well, I I really think I'm set. I mean, I really think that I have, you know, a, a good understanding of this. Okay, then here's the question. How will we as a congregation help the most helpless people in our congregation, the people who cannot help themselves? If you are thinking now about that question, then this passage really does come into a new, clear understanding of, wow, 
What would this be like? Now, as Pastor Rod pointed out in his message last Sunday morning, I would just point out this is largely a topical message at the beginning. That is, I I need to sort of lay the groundwork using Acts chapter 6. And then when we get to John chapter 15, I'll specifically preach to you about what Jesus told us about our ability to work together. So when you look at what happened here in this congregation in Jerusalem, here's what's very plain. When he says, they called the disciples together. Do you see there in Acts chapter 6, when it says in those days, when the number of the disciples were multiplied, they called were the members of the church at Jerusalem. They were the members of that congregation. Now remember that later on they were called Christians, first at Antioch, that's over in Acts chapter 11. But who is it, who were called Christians? And the answer is the disciples were called Christians. Every once in a while you'll hear someone say, well, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really a disciple. May I point out to you That's one of the ways that we depart from a scriptural understanding of what a Christian even is. The Christian, the scripture says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. They were recognized by their profession of faith as they followed the Lord in believer's baptism. And I listed all this for you in your manuscript so you could go back and read for yourself the indications of this. When they made that profession of faith, they were baptized very shortly thereafter. The Bible teaches us that New Testament believers will be baptized. It would be difficult to find an exception to this, especially since Jesus included it in the Great Commission. When he said, go ye therefore and teach all disciple nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The churches also make formal church membership in a local church obvious. There are folks today who are saying, well... There really is no such thing as a local church. It's just sort of a generalized group of believers in in an area. And they will say, and the Bible doesn't teach church membership. Both of those are false. And you can study it for yourself because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul makes a very clear distinction between those who are inside the congregation as Members, that is, they have professed, they have been baptized, they are professing believers. He makes a really uh, important distinction between those who are inside the congregation and those who are outside the congregation. The New Testament church shows us that normally there are no churchless disciples. May I say it again? Normally, there are no churchless disciples. Now, we don't know exactly when. The uh, Ethiopian eunuch in Acts, when he trusted Christ and he was headed back to his homeland, we don't know much about his church affiliation. We do know from church history that there was an enormous number of churches that were planted down there. We suspect he was part of that. But normally, you just don't see in Scripture, you do not see churchless disciples. And I would encourage you to go back and look at that for yourself and study that. Being part of a congregation is the way to grow up into Christ's likeness in Jesus Christ. That's the way it's expressed in Ephesians 4.13 when he says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. That is, if you and I want to grow up to be like Jesus Christ, we get into a local church. We profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We baptize. We come into that membership. And then in working together, 
in, with all of our different backgrounds. Remember, here's some and they speak Aramaic and here's others and they speak Hebrew, they speak uh, Greek. And so here you are, you're kind of wrestling with all this and here is exactly the way the Lord's designed it. He's designed it so that we would grow up into Christ's likeness. Now here's what happened. These apostles who were acting as the pastors, elders in that church, they instructed the church as to their priorities the spiritual leaders needed to be free to invest themselves in the word and prayer. Now, by the way, keep that one in mind because when we come back to John 15 in just a minute, I think that will really kind of pop. I think it'll really make a lot more sense. Why were they saying, hey, we as pastors, we need to give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Why did they make that such a high priority? I think part of the answer is over in Luke chapter 10. Do you remember the story about Mary and Martha? And how the Lord actually commended Mary for sitting at his feet and listening to his word. But Martha was so troubled, she was serving all over the place. And the Lord actually commended Mary as the one who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. So and you, when you think about this, I think this is what the apostles and who are acting as pastors and elders here, this is what they're driving at. We'll come back to John 15 in just a moment. As we learned in the last message, Pastor Rod made this very plain, that there's an equal sign between pastor and elder. They're all functioning its functions, and, and they're, they're functioning there as a plurality of pastors or a plurality of elders. It makes it very plain that they rule in the congregation. Okay, Stop the message here just for a moment and ask, how does that work? If we're talking about congregational authority, then in what sense do your, your pastors, elders, how do they rule in the congregation? And I tried to lay this out very carefully for you in your manuscript because this much is very plain. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, here's what Peter wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's coming from the Lord. And here's what he told the elders. Don't be lords over God's heritage. That is, they're not to lord it over them. Okay, if, if they're not lording it over them, then in what sense do they rule? How do, how, how do they rule in, inside a congregation? You might take your Bibles and turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 13 because there this becomes abundantly clear. How is it possible for pastors, elders to rule in a congregation when they're not to lord it over God's heritage and in fact, The Bible teaches a congregational authority. How does that work? Here's where Hebrews 13, 7 through 9 really, really helps us. Here's what it says. Remember those which have the rule over you. Okay, so he's talking about the pastor's elders. Remember those which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God. Okay, pause with me just for a moment because here's where it becomes very plain. How is it that anybody inside our congregation, whether it be a pastor or a teacher, how is it they have any authority whatsoever? How is it that the person who stands here at this desk, be it Pastor Rod or me or anybody, how is it that they have any authority whatsoever? Is it uh, they, they went to college and now they have a certain number of letters behind their name? Or uh, they, they were voted in by the congregation, you know, that, that uh, authority was given to them. Hey, you're up front, so, I mean, you're the one. Is that what it is? 
This passage makes this very plain. The only real authority that we have is that we can show it to you in the Bible. That's the only real authority we have. So in all the future pastors that we might have here in our congregation, here's what's implied by that. You ought to be sitting with your Bible and going through line by line and saying, wait, is that what the Bible actually teaches? I mean, is that just, is that just his opinion? I try to tell you if I'm giving you my opinion about something, I usually say, hey, take this with a pinch of salt or go ahead and take it with a box of rock salt because my opinion is just like anybody else's opinion. But if we can show it to you in God's word and we can show it to you in the scriptures, then you realize, oh, it's not just the authority of someone who stands up at a wooden desk and you know, kind of proclaims to everybody. It's actually God's authority. It's actually the Lord's authority being explained or expressed. That's the real key here. One author noted that the leaders of the church are described here less by their office and more by their function of preaching and teaching the word. Their leadership authority derives from the authority of the word. So there you have it. This is how pastors, elders have rule over the congregation. What they're doing is they're expressing what the scriptures actually teaches. You get a chance to say, was that accurate? I mean, are they, are they doing that in a balanced manner? How are they really expressing that? And he goes on to say, consider the end of their conduct. And the end of their conduct is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, by the by, the writer of Hebrews using the word remember, it implies that some of their pastors had already passed away. and But what they're actually doing is saying, hey, you remember when pastor so-and-so was alive? He taught us that and, and he showed us a particular scripture. So the authority of the word continues even if human servants of God pass away. That's the real issue. And he says here, don't be carried away by diverse and strange doctrines. So The pastors here asked the disciples to make a choice to advance the ministry. Think about what's happening here. The pastors didn't just say, hey, we need to get this organized. And so we're going to go and we're going to get these men, you, 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 and you, and, and you take care of this. They didn't do that. They went to the congregation and said, here's what's going on. Here's what the problem is. We are being called upon to meet these needs of people who are largely helpless, providing daily food for them as we are able to do so. Hey, guys, we don't have time to pray and and get into the Word as we ought to do. And here's what we need to do. We need to delegate. We need to organize. And here's what we're going to ask you to do. We're going to ask you as a congregation to choose out men, catch this, whom we may appoint over this business. That's a really interesting way of saying that. Here's what they did. The pastors basically gave biblical instructions to the people. They said, let's choose seven. And let's choose men who are full of the Holy Spirit. That is men who do not grieve the Holy Spirit. They do not quench the Holy Spirit. People, when you see them under stress and duress, they do not grow angry and sinful. These are people who are full of the Holy Spirit because they desperately need to be that in order to minister, especially in stressful situations, especially when you have one group saying, hey, we're not, our widows aren't being treated the way those widows are. Okay, it's going to take someone who is full of the Holy Spirit to work through those issues. 
But the real point here is that the, these pastors, and again, I say the apostles were acting as pastors in the church there. Here's what they're telling the congregation. They're telling the congregation, you are spiritually competent to make these choices. And don't forget, many of these were brand new believers. They had just come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior. And he's already, they're already saying about them, you are spiritually competent. I would ask you the question, is that the way most people see Christianity and church in the way the Bible is looking at it here? How is that even possible? How is it possible that people could have the competence to make those kinds of decisions, being very discerning? Because in essence, what you have is a spiritually competent congregation making decisions about spiritually competent individuals who will serve inside that congregation. How does that work? How can that be put together? They asked the church to make decisions. They decided, the church decided to pass over somebody. I just want you to think about this. The next time you're reading through Acts, one of the most notable people in the book of Acts was a man named Barnabas. And as they chose deacons, they specifically passed over Barnabas. They didn't choose Barnabas. You say, well, you know, that's because Barnabas was more like a, is more like a preacher, more like an evangelist or missionary. No, you read this list and here's what you find out. You find out that some of those men who were chosen as deacons, they later became preachers and evangelists. So how did Barnabas feel about being passed over? You know, one of the beauties of the word of God is apparently it didn't bother him at all. As a servant leader, he was totally content to say, hey, whatever the congregation wants, that's what we really want. And so then the way this is put together is these, they are saying to the congregation, choose you out men whom we may appoint. Now, if you look up here, basically here's what you have. You have a very close touching of authority here. It's not the congregation overrules the pastors or the pastors overrule the congregation. What you've got is a really interesting balance here of pastoral authority ruling. Again, how do they rule? They rule by showing you the Bible, showing you the scriptures. That's how they rule. And then they are saying to the congregation, you are spiritually competent to make these kind of choices. And that's exactly what they did. And the end result was that the ministry grew. I mean, even priests, those who were up to that point believing that you could be, you could get to heaven by doing good works, they were converted and they realized, whoa. And how did that happen? It happened by a church coming together in unity and recognizing spiritual competence as they worked along with the Holy Spirit to see how this, this comes together. Now, what I've given you here are just a few examples in your notes of what you can see in congregational authority. You would see, for instance, that uh, there's congregational authority to receive members into the membership and to exclude members from the membership. That's referred to in scripture as church discipline. You can see it in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. You can see someone being restored to fellowship after having been excluded over in 2 Corinthians 2. 
The local church was there to meet the practical needs through these men chosen in Acts chapter 6. The Bible later calls them deacons. And Paul and Barnabas were actually sent out by the local church. By the way, one of the most interesting, there was this controversy in the early church. And they got a number of churches together and said, let's go to Jerusalem. And it was actually the congregation at Jerusalem that listened very carefully to the various arguments on both sides of those things. And that, that I can just try to picture that as all these disciples are sitting out there as various speeches, as various statements are being made. And they're the ones who are saying, wait, 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 that, that's not scriptural. That, that's not what the Bible actually teaches, does it? And another saying, I think this is what the Bible teaches over here. That's exactly how they came together in a consensus, certainly with the leadership of James, who was the pastor there at Jerusalem. But this is basically what you see in congregational authority. Now, all of this leads up to the verse we read a few moments ago. This is in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. When you think about the, the competency of a congregation to make these kind of choices, This is what the Lord is driving at here when he says in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, Now unto him, in the context it has to be God the Father, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. So think about what he's saying here. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Folks, can I pause just for a moment to tell you something? The world around us is longing to see a church that really honors God. They want to know that there are real answers to life's questions. They want to know that there are people who will come together in love and they will work together in such a way that God is truly glorified and they're not getting the glory for themselves. They are glorifying God. And it's so evident, as John the Baptist said in John 3.30, he must increase and I must decrease. They're longing to see this. People all around us are asking this question, is it real? I mean, I hear people say it's in the Bible there, but is it really real? How can this be a reality? How can sinful and evil people such as we are actually come together in a spirit-filled fellowship and, and actually work together in such a way that it brings glory and honor to God. How is that even possible? It's possible by the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ lived a perfectly righteous life. By the way, he was examined by the very specific Jewish law and by the Roman law. When he was tried by both the Jewish law and the Roman law, and he was tortured, they could find no fault whatsoever in him. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ lived the righteous life that every one of us should have lived. But then what did he do? 
He gave himself over into the hands of cruel men. And you know what they charged the Son of God with? They charged him with confessing that he was the Son of God. This is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He was given over into the hands of cruel men who tortured him. And they nailed him to the cross of Calvary. And why did that happen? Why did they take a perfectly innocent individual, a perfectly innocent one, and nail him to a cross? The Bible tells you it was for the sins of you and me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him should not perish should not go to hell and the lake of fire, should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's just the power of the gospel, folks. And by the power of Jesus Christ, who lived the righteous life that we should have lived, and then in our place he died the sinner's death that we should have died, and to prove that he was completely and totally righteous, God the Father raised him again the third day from the dead. He proved that he was totally righteous. This is a little later in the manuscript, but let me just point this out to you. There was an editorial the other day in the newspaper by Clarence Page. He writes for the Chicago Tribune. He was writing about the situation that happened in New York. You've read about the Marine who had to restrain a violent man, and that violent man passed away in that, so now there's a court case that's going to go on. And there's difficulty on both sides of this. And Clarence Page pointed out in the editorial, he said, you know, the fact is that not everybody's going to be happy with whatever decision comes out. They're just, I mean, both sides of this are going to disagree and argue. But then he made this really interesting comment. He said, as a lawyer friend of mine says, as long as that man doesn't come back from the dead, can there ever be justice? That jumped off the page at me. You hear what that lawyer is saying? He said, look, unless somebody comes back from the dead, there can never be justice. Well, here is the glorious proclamation of the word of God. Everyone will come back from the dead. There is a day of justice and judgment coming when everyone will be judged. The Bible says it is appointed unto man to die one time. And after this, the judgment, there is a judgment day coming. And this is what we're trying to warn everybody about and warn them to flee to Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died for their sins and rose again so that they would not have to go to hell and the lake of fire, but be blessed in heaven for all eternity. This is where Clarence Page and others who talk about justice, they don't understand justice because they don't understand there is going to come a resurrection. In the words of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, wait for it. It will most surely come, wait for it. It's in that context that we look at what is happening here in our society and we raise the question about how can we as a church function? Okay, believe it or not, everything in the message up to this point was teaching. Okay, so now let me address the final question. Are we as believers actually spiritually competent to make those kind of decisions? 
You read about what it says about church discipline, and here's what it says. When you all come together, you deliver that person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh and the saving of the soul. You say, whoa, I mean, whoa, think about what that means. And here's what the Bible's teaching. It's teaching that you and I as believers, members of this local congregation, we are actually spiritually competent to do that. And you may be saying, I don't feel like I am spiritually competent, all right? Turn with me over to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. I'm going to scoot ahead a little bit in your manuscript just to point something out to you. Here is a very common problem. Here's the problem. We think about Christianity by saying, well, if I just work a little bit harder, if, if, I, just, if I just kind of really, really, really were to get diligent and, and really work a little harder, I might become a disciple. I might. I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I might get there. Remember the story, do you read this to your children, the little engine that could? I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And that's basically the way that a lot of people think about Christianity and say, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I, I'm, 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 not, I'm not really a disciple. May I say to you that I believe we've been brainwashed on that? Here's what the Bible actually teaches about this. And I listed it in your notes there in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It tells you that each and every one of us are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. The Bible teaches that our position as believers right now is we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Hey, question, what kind of seat is Jesus Christ seated on. He's seated on a throne. And what that passage is teaching is you and I as believers, we presently are seated with in heavenly places with Christ. In other words, we already exercise that authority. Here's the problem. Our problem is that we've kind of been brainwashed into the little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, when in fact, We're not acting on our position of who we actually are in Christ. What if you and I were to take the step boldly and say, okay, Lord, if I am spiritually competent to do this, then I'm going to start talking to people. I'm going to start talking to other believers here in the congregation, other believers I know, and share with them what the Lord is teaching me. And by the way, I'm also going to go ahead and start speaking to people that don't know the Lord. And, and I, want to, I want to share with them, too, what the Lord is doing in my life, what would happen. I remember this like it was yesterday. This is in Athens, Georgia, University of Athens. We would, when I was a student, university, we would go down on Friday nights. We would witness in, on the University of Georgia, Athens campus. And we'd get back, I don't know, probably 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning from down there. I still remember the day that I was standing by a Russell Dormitory. I don't even know if the dormitory is there anymore, but if I remember correctly, it was like eight or ten stories tall. And the first time we were getting ready to go in that dormitory, I remember that the windows were open and the rock music was blaring and you could smell marijuana smoke coming out of the windows. Okay, you want to go into a situation like that and witness? I was like, oh, can I do this? Oh, Lord, help me here. And we went in and we we go to the contacts we had there and start talking to them about the Lord. One of those young men asked me a question that I couldn't answer. Now, I had been a student at a Bible college by this time for two and a half years. And he asked me a question, and I thought, 
boy, I don't have, I don't have a ready answer for what he's asking me. And it bothered me that I, I couldn't immediately answer that question. And so I said, tell you what, if you'll give me a week, I'll get back to you. And he said, yeah, well, he said, I'm, I'm, you're going to see that I'm right. That question, that question bothered me so much that I got back, as I say, about two o'clock in the morning from extension, eight o'clock the next morning, I was in the, I was in the library at school and I'm pounding out and I'm asking that question. And I think it was by about noon or one o'clock that day, I knew what that answer was. And the following week went right back to his room and said, let me show you what's really going on here and gave him an answer. Has it occurred to you that you will not grow up into that understanding until you take that step? I didn't know the answer when he, when he presented it to me. But within a few hours after that, I knew what the answer was. Maybe if you stop to think about it, that's exactly what the Lord wants us to do is demonstrate our spiritual competence. Not wonder, do I have it? but actually demonstrate it before others. You say, all right, how can I know that's true? You turned over to John chapter 15. Notice what the Lord said in John 15, verses seven and eight. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my father glorified that you bear much fruit so shall you be my disciples. You are looking at the beating heart of spiritual competence there in verses seven and eight. What Jesus is saying is, you can't bear fruit of yourself all by yourself, John 15 verses four through five. No, the only way to bear fruit is to recognize your very close connection with Jesus Christ, having identified with him, And knowing that you have new life, eternal life, working in you and through you, now it's all about drawing close to Christ. This is the question I raised a few minutes ago. Why do we have all these storms in our society, financial, moral, all these other storms going on? Folks, I just want to raise the question again. Is it because of the disobedience of believers? It was because of the disobedience of the prophet Jonah in the book of Jonah. Is it because of the spiritual disobedience of believers? that we are seeing these storms in our society? If so, we know exactly how to address this question. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We know how to do this. We know how to abide in Christ. We know how to pray. We know how his words can abide in us. And as we do, here's what the Bible says, God will be glorified. Look at John 15 and verse eight. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so shall you be my disciples. That's the way people recognize disciples. It's by their fruit bearing. Can you sin without being chastened? Can you do what you know before God, you know it's wrong and get away with it completely? Dear friend, the Bible teaches you that if that's true of you, you need to find out if you're really a child of God. Because whom the Lord loves, help me finish it, whom the Lord loves, he he chastens, he corrects. John 15 is full of that. In fact, it tells you that those who are bearing fruit, he's going to chasten them. He's going to prune them. Why? So they can bring forth more fruit. 
That's a wonderful agricultural illustration. We use it every year with our apple trees. Why would anybody cut perfectly good, healthy living wood off an apple tree? You do it because you want fruit and not fruit wood. This is what the Lord does. He prunes us. But this passage is teaching us that the key test of discipleship is enduring that chastening from the Lord and bearing fruit to the glory of God the Father. One of our men has had a prayer request going back a number of years. And there are those of us in this room who prayed earnestly for his father. And in the last couple of days, his father trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. And if I'm doing the math right, about two hours ago, the man was baptized. And he is rejoicing today. For whom have you been praying and you're crying out to the Lord and asking, Lord, when can it be? Here's what the Bible is teaching. If you and I come together as a congregation, if you abide in me, Jesus Christ said, and my words abide in you, that's biblical meditation, you can ask whatever you desire in order that God the Father may be glorified. If you say, okay, I'm going to ask for the Maserati, you're missing the point. It's asking what would be glorifying to God to make us better fruit bearers. Now think about this. This next Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock, we are reaching out to a number of people in our community who have no church home. You have the opportunity, even this Wednesday, to go out and invite some more of them. You have the opportunity to take one of those door hangers and take it over to your next door neighbor and, and talk to somebody else and say, hey, we'd love for you to come for this. What if, dear friend, what if? This is exactly what the Lord wants us to do as evidence here in the word of God. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will. Ask whatever you desire and it will be given you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so shall ye be my disciples. What if Hancock County could recognize there are disciples? There they are. Those are the people. Dear friend, that's exactly how Christ's authority is demonstrated through a congregation. Shall we pray together? Lord, how we praise you and thank you for the patience of these dear people as we work through some of these issues. I ask your Heavenly Father now that we would truly glorify our Heavenly Father, not for our own glory, not so that we could boast of any false importance or self-importance, but that you would truly be glorified. Lord, we pray that you would help us to break down barriers and share the good news of Jesus Christ with every person who is willing to hear it. And Lord, give us fruit for our labor cause that we would bear much fruit and be recognized as your disciples. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.